Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. All right. That's enough hellos. <laughs> um, if you don't know me, my name's Mike. Um, and it's great to be here tonight. Um, just wanted to say thanks, Kiralee and the band, for leading us in worship. And that was a beautiful song, Kiralee. It was really amazing. Thanks for sharing it with us. And thanks also, Jesse, for reading the passage for us tonight. All right, so um, we're looking at 3 John today, which is actually the shortest book in the Bible, interestingly. Um, little tidbit for you. Um, and, well, I'm, I want to talk about the church um, and how we are essentially really how we should behave as a church to each other, how we should treat each other. Because the church is it's an essential element of the good news of Jesus. Um, and we are, we're saved. When we're saved, we're also incorporated into a community um, which we belong to, which we call the church. And we're called to participate in this community and its mission together um, for the sake of the name, as John puts it. And we're called to create an environment that is life-giving. And the church, it was created to proclaim, like I said, the good news um, and also to bring God's light, his peace, his truth into the world. And yet at the same time, I'm sure all of us know that the church is definitely not a perfect place by any means. And sometimes it's actually a pretty bad place. Sometimes churches hurt us. Sometimes they disappoint us. Sometimes they insult us. Sometimes they exclude us. Sometimes they make us anxious. And that's all. It's not good. And so to carry on the Anglican, the flame of the Anglican church while Nick is away, there's a quick quote from the 39 articles of the Church of England and it puts it like this. In the visible church, the evil and the good be ever mingled. You see, all churches are mixtures of good and bad stuff. Um, and on a bad day, it might seem like kind of Christian communities very rarely even reflect um, the mission of Jesus um, in their life together. And for me, this, this probably prompts some of the biggest questions that I wrestle with as a Christian. Like, why is this? You know, why, if the Holy Spirit has fueled each of us, why is it that we struggle to behave well to each other? And why do we experience um, hurt? from other Christians. And that's, I'm not going to try and address that big question tonight because it's probably too big to do it justice in a, in a um, sermon. But I think it's something that we probably all wrestle with to an extent. Um, and there is a good book that's helped me a bit. It's called um, A Church Called Tove, written by Scott McKnight, which wrestles with those kind of issues. But tonight what I wanted to look at is like how... How can we actually, you know, work together to produce a church environment, Christian environment that is life-giving? So 
the Christian communities depicted in the New Testament, it's really interesting that they're also very, very flawed. Like the New Testament isn't trying to sugarcoat the way that the early Christians um, behaved. It's not coy about the hurt that they do to each other sometimes. And in the New Testament, we see that Christians are proud of their gifts. Sometimes they're like really unloving. Sometimes they even refuse to associate with other races. Sometimes they're even suing each other. Like whenever they've got an issue, they're just going out and suing each other. And they're even getting drunk during communion. Like they're drinking um, in Corinthians, the... the, um, the rich people are basically just keeping all the communion meal to themselves and excluding the poor people. So new, the New Testament Christians were also pretty imperfect. Today we're reading from 3, 3 John and it's a very short letter, but it gives us a glimpse into the life of one particular New Testament community. And what we see is not particularly a pretty picture. There's a lot going on in the background of this letter. Um, 1, 2 and 3 John are all sort of interrelated letters from John the Apostle to the churches around Ephesus, which was in Asia Minor, which is now I think it's modern day Turkey. And the letters speak about a particular situation that was developing in these, this kind of interconnected community of churches. So what was going on was some people had begun... Um, denying that Jesus actually came in the flesh, that he actually came as a human being. And then they've broken from the church and they are organising these travelling preachers to circulate around the various churches to try and um, spread this new idea that they had. And so then in 3 John, which we're looking at today, we actually see that another group um, of travelling preachers who had stayed faithful to the original um, Christian message were responding by going out for the sake of the name. And these people, they depended on the hospitality of other Christians. Um, When they arrived in a place, they would need to be received by other Christians in order to survive. And so... Some of these itinerant preachers, they come to the place where Gaius and Diotrephes um, lived. And Gaius has welcomed them into his house, whereas Diotrephes, who appears to be some kind of leader in this community, he's actually excluded them. He hasn't received them. And we don't know why this is, but it appears that Diotrephes maybe had some issues with John. Like it doesn't seem to be the case that he like agrees with the um, false teacher itinerant preachers, which is interesting. And so then these travelling preachers, the faithful ones, it's kind of a bit confusing because there's two groups of them. They've returned back to the community that John comes from and they've reported back about Gaius's hospitality to them as well as Diotrephes' rejection of them. And so... The letter of 3 John is written to Gaius then to try and help him navigate this kind of pretty tense situation that's developing. And so the letter, it has in it a note of of encouragement to Gaius where um, John encourages the good behaviour that he's doing. 
Then it also includes a warning and a criticism about diatrophies. And so in all of this, it gives us a record of some of the behavioural responses, right? And the motives of the different characters in this tense situation. And it shows us the behaviours and the motives that John thought would lead to spiritual well-being, to the flourishing of this community, as well as the behaviours that he thought would poison its life together. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to circle around these characters and we're going to pull back the layers and see what lies underneath their behaviour. So firstly, we'll look at the specific behaviours um, that John encourages, that he thinks leads to life, as well as those that he criticises. And then we're going to have a look at those motives under the surface and we'll see how they kind of actually erupt into the behaviour of these characters. And then finally, we'll see how what's undergirding it all is their understanding of their relationship to God. So the behaviours and the motives that we see in 3 John, um, they actually are pretty relevant today. It's amazing and maybe troubling how familiar they actually are. And so 3 John's, it's a very helpful resource for us when we navigate church tensions. And it shows us a way forward if we ever face difficulties. And in the meantime, it helps us as Hills Baptist to see how we can continue to become a church of truth, of safety, of well-being, of refuge, and of genuine hope for people who have been wounded. But before we jump in, if I could just have my next slide, I just wanted to briefly talk about why behaviour actually matters. Sometimes as the modern church, we, I think, are a little bit allergic to talk about behaviour or practices. But the first thing that we actually notice when we do a first just sweep over 3 John is that it's actually just a pretty profoundly practical letter. Like it doesn't actually really mention much kind of big heady theology or stuff like that. John's primary concern is with the behaviour of the different characters in the letter. And so John praises Gaius and the good things that he's doing. So he clearly sees some behaviours as actually being good, as being desirable for us to show. And in verse 3 and 4, John is overjoyed to hear from the travelling preachers that Gaius actually walks in the truth. And what does it mean to walk in the truth? Well, walking is a verb. It's an action word, a behaviour. John is saying that Gaius is faithful, not just because like he believes the right things, but actually also because his behaviour is consistent with his beliefs. Wouldn't it be great if the church was more like that? On the other hand, um, John thinks that some behaviours are not so good. And if we look down to verses 9 and 10, John, he criticises diatrophies. It's really interesting that John 
doesn't mention Diotrephes' beliefs. Like if you have a quick look at the letter, there's, there isn't any mention of his beliefs. For all we know, Diotrephes might actually have held the true beliefs, the right beliefs. But here the important thing is the way that he is behaving. So clearly John cares about behaviour. But why does he care? Well, it's not just because he has like personal preferences about what's good and what's not. And it's not because he thinks that, that Christians should just try and be these kind of teachers, pets, goody two-shoes kind of people. No, it's because he thinks that certain behaviours are actually good. They're actually good for us and they're actually good for the people around us. And, and, and when, we, when we're hurt by other people, we really see that, we know that. Verse 2 makes it clear that John wants to see things go well with Gaius's soul. He wants to see things go well with Gaius's soul. He's interested in Gaius's well-being and in his flourishing as a Christian. So let's dive in and look at the first layer of this kind of onion. Let's look at the behaviours of these characters. How did Gaius and Diotrephes behave? What specific behaviours will also promote spiritual flourishing in our Christian community together? I think we can see that there's a whole range of different things that we could pick out of 3 John. What I've identified is by no means an, an exhaustive list and it's not groundbreaking stuff. Like it's pretty simple um, and you might notice other things that John encourages and discourages. And let's talk about that after the service. The behaviours I've pulled out give us a, a taste, I think, of the kind of practices that are actually going to lead to a flourishing church community here among us. So the first thing that we see, if I could have my next slide, please, is that a flourishing community is open and accountable to other Christians as individuals and as a community. In verse 9 and 10, John criticises Diotrephes because he refuses to welcome the friends, these travelling preachers. Whereas John commends Gaius in verses 5 to 8 for receiving them. And what we actually have here in these verses is a description of first century hospitality. So we need to take a step back and understand like what hospitality meant in the first century. For us, when we hear the word hospitality, we might think of people who work in a cafe and get abused by boomers all day long. <laughs> or we might think about having our friends over for dinner. But in the ancient world, you don't just show, well, you don't show hospitality to your mates, to the inner circle. It's actually a structured process where people on the outside of the community are included into it as guests. And so hospitality, it also wasn't just about the actual, you know, individuals, the individual people that were involved in that. Showing hospitality actually formed a relationship with the communities of those involved. 
And so this is why John says in verse 9 that Diotrephes does not acknowledge our authority or that Diotrephes does not receive us in other translations. He's referring to himself and likely also to the Christian community that he's from because he uses like the plural us. So John understood that Diotrephes' rejection of the travelling preachers that he had sent, that this community had sent, was also a rejection of them, of his community. So when Diotrephes refuses um, to receive these itinerant preachers, he isn't just being like a big, mean guy. He's not just being ungenerous. He's also actually cutting himself off from the Christian community that they came from and the whole system of interconnected Christian communities um, that John and his church were a part of. So he re- what he's doing at the end of the day is he's rejecting the influence of other Christians, other Christian communities in his life. Basically, he's saying no to the accountability structures that were present in the early church. And he's trying to set him up himself up as kind of like a, a lone wolf operator. But as the poet John Donne says, no man is an island. Isolating yourself is dangerous. And it reminds me of a bizarre story that happened on a little barren island off the US called Clipperton Island. If I, yeah, there, there it is. That's the island. And that's like, it's a big atoll, but like I had a look on Google Maps and there's not much more vegetation than that. But this island, all the like world powers at the time, like the French, um, the US, well, I guess it's not a world power, but also Mexico, they were, they were trying to fight over this island because it had lots of bird poo. And the bird poo, like over the years, it like accretes and becomes like this really hard stuff that's got a special name and you can use it for making gunpowder. And so the, um, the different, you know, world powers, they didn't want each other to have access to the bird poo essentially on this island. And so um, the US were there and then the Mexicans came and booted them off the island. And this is a true story. You can look it up. And they actually set up this small colony of, um, of soldiers to guard the island. Like the other world powers, they hadn't committed that far because probably it's not that important. But Mexico, I guess they saw it as their moment to really make a stand. And they even, they built a lighthouse on the island, which was manned by a, a guy called Vic, Victorano Alvarez. That's my Spanish for you. And by 1910, there were 100 men women and children who lived and worked on that place. And they were growing crops, apparently, in the, um, in the rocks. Pretty crazy. And so they also weren't self-sufficient. Like they had to rely on supply ships from Mexico to survive. But in 1911, a big revolution broke out in Mexico and unfortunately for the guys of, on the island, they got forgotten about. Like there was more important things at home to worry about. And so the supply ships stopped coming. And so these colonists on the island, they were actually cut off from the mainland. And at that point, 
things went pretty south. What happened was the lighthouse keeper guy proclaimed himself as king of this island, king of Clipperton Island. And without the, you know, the authority structures, the accountability structures, sorry, of the Mexican kind of community, he was able to rule on this island with an iron fist until he was um, killed by in a power struggle. So happy ending. You see, if we cut each other, if we cut ourselves off from other communities, other Christian communities, both as individuals and as a community, things can go south. On the other hand, Gaius connected himself. He connected himself to this other community by receiving the travelling preachers. John says in verse 8 that the reason Gaius should show support um, for the travelling preachers is so that he may become a co-worker with the truth, a co-worker. And I really love this image of being co-workers together, like we're all co-workers together. It suggests that we have a common mission and it also suggests that as we pursue that mission, we're actually bound together with others, even strangers in other places like what 3 John shows us. And I think maybe our relationship as a church with Hohidii is a, a, an example of that, a good example of that kind of connection. We send people to them and then they also send people to us and in the process, we try and serve God together. Like it's not this, you know, where the Western missionaries come in to tell you how to do things. We make friends, we learn from each other and they help us to see our blind spots in the process. And so as we faithfully serve God and his mission together, what happens is we naturally encounter other faithful servants and other faithful communities and these connections, they become a safe net for us that keeps us in check and helps us to see maybe some of our blind spots, some of the ways that we may um, go wrong. <clears throat> so the second behaviour that I, that I think we see in 3 John that leads to flourishing is service. If I could have my next slide, please. We see that Diotrephes tries to control other Christians through fear. Whereas John uses his authority to serve. Diotrephes doesn't just refuse the travelling preachers in verse 10, but he also tries and stops other Christians from receiving them. And he even goes as far as excommunicating, expelling these other Christians. In a way, he's a little bit like that king of Clipperton Island. He sees travelling preachers as a threat to his own little kingdom maybe. And he uses his position, right, as an opportunity to just exercise power over people. And he's willing to do whatever it takes really to make other people bend to his will. And so he manages his congregation by creating a culture of fear, a culture of fear of exclusion, and it's not hard at all 
to find examples of Christian leaders who behave like this today. And, you know, if you're aware of the sort of evangelical media stream, there's been a lot of um, allegations that have come to light in recent years of this kind of behaviour. John strongly rebukes diatrophies for this domineering behaviour because it's unacceptable in Christian communities. It's really interesting that John, you might remember from the Gospels, he was one of the disciples that was, you know, kind of put in his place a little bit by Jesus because he was trying to sit at the right hand of Jesus. So he has had this kind of tendency too in the past. But here in 3 John, he models a very different way, I think, of wielding authority. In 3 John, we see some of the details um, that reveal the way that he wields his authority. And I think some of them are pretty beautiful, really. Firstly, he refers to himself as the elder. Like he doesn't refer to himself as the king. He doesn't refer to himself as the leader, which is a word that Christians have become very, we use a lot. Not even the apostle, which he was. And it suggests that he was likely part of a group of elders. Um, he also refers to his flock as beloved, his dear friends, his children. And John is known for being the disciple of love. And this clearly comes through in 3 John. It's a sense of affection, of um, friendship, of family that grounds his authority. And then John's joy as a spiritual father is bound up in the welfare of the flock. Like he doesn't use control tactics. Instead, he celebrates. He warns of danger. He encourages. Because what he wants is to see other people flourish. And even though Diotrephes opposes John, John doesn't just kind of cut off communication with him. Instead, he clearly wants to see things made right. And um, his preference, it seems, is to talk in person. You know, our society is very online these days. And part of the problem with being online is that you, you miss a lot of the kind of basic um, kind of cues in communication. Um, so I think it's interesting that John wants to talk in person. Finally, in verse 15, there's a little detail which I think is really powerful. John asks Gaius to greet the friends by name. And I love the image of Gaius greeting each sheep in the flock one by one on John's behalf. He doesn't show favouritism despite all the tensions that are going on in this church community. Instead, all are greeted. And I think that's a pretty powerful gesture. Um, this, I think the fact that he knows their names, each one of them, it also shows that he probably is familiar with their stories and with their experiences. Like he's an intimate pastor. He's not like a distant stage persona or celebrity pastor kind of vibe. <laughs> and of course, I think it's, 
pretty hard to love people if we don't even know their names. Ultimately, John's way of wielding his authority is a mirror of the service that is described by Jesus in Mark 10. Verses 42 to 45 say, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That says it all, really. So the third behaviour that we see in 3 John that I think leads to flourishing is telling the truth. When Diotrephes, when his wrongdoing is exposed, he responds by spreading malicious nonsense about John and his associates. And apparently this kind of behaviour among unrepentant kind of wrongdoers is very common, even today. Um, My wife Ivy's a social worker and apparently there's an acronym for it. It's called DRAVO, deny, attack, and then reverse the victim and the offender. So it's deny, attack, reverse, victim, offender. And so what these um, people do is they divert attention elsewhere. They try and cover up the mistakes. They try and shift the blame onto others. Um, and they spread unfounded rumours like what we see in John. In other words, they lie, basically. And human beings, we, we're sinful. We, we're sinful. But we're also really good at trying to sweep our sins under the rug and pretending that we don't have sin to try and avoid responsibility. 1 John 1 verse 8 speaks directly to this behaviour. It says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That hits home pretty hard. Walking in the truth also means that we tell the truth. And it all begins by confessing the truth about ourselves. In the place of telling lies about ourselves, 1 John 1 continues and it calls us to confess our sins to God and to one another. And confession means simply to frankly admit to our mistakes, to name them, to describe them, to own up to what we've done. And just as a note, it should never be a forced thing. It's an exercise in truth-telling, basically. And it calls us to surrender to the truth, to be humble, to be willing to submit ourselves to the truth, even when it's difficult. And so in a way, it takes a lot of courage to do that. As a community, we must be committed to this practice of confessing our sins We need to do the challenging work of speaking frankly about our failings, repenting actively and trying to construct a a culture in our church that is rooted in grace and truth and transparency. 
And if we do this, 1 John 1 says that God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, which is great reassurance. And so to summarise, flourishing Christians and churches, they avoid denial and spin and telling lies and they tell the truth. So the, f- the last behaviour that I want to quickly look at, which I think leads to flourishing, is imitating the good. It's natural for us to copy other people. We need to choose our models wisely. In verse 11, John summarises what he's said so far by saying to Gaius, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. And I've sort of wondered as I've been preparing this sermon, like who is um, John actually encouraging Gaius to copy? Maybe it's John. Maybe it's the um, travelling preachers. Or maybe it's this guy Demetrius who just gets one little shout out in the Bible. He's, he's a good guy apparently. That's all we know about him. They're all worthy candidates for us to imitate. I think it might be left open on purpose because there's many, many good people that we could imitate. You see, there's no intellectual property rights in the church. There's no turn it in software. So you can copy and paste as much as you want. Paul, he tells the Corinthians, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So we should imitate other people to the extent that they are like Jesus. Ultimately, I think verse 11 is calling us to imitate Jesus because he is the only person worth imitating. And that's why I think John doesn't mention a specific specific person in verse 11. Instead, Jesus is the good. Jesus is the good that John is referring to and calling us to imitate. And goodness just emanates from Jesus. And so the behaviours and the motives that will lead to life are ultimately those that Jesus embodies in his life. And so our community will become a place of flourishing when we seek and we desire, first and foremost, to imitate Jesus together. So can I please have my next slide? So we've had a look at that kind of outside layer. Now we're going to pull it back and we're going to look at what lies under it. What motivations um, ground these behaviours. First, look at Diotrephes. He um, resented these travelling preachers and he acts unkindly towards them. Why? Well, verse 9 tells us that Diotrephes likes to put himself first. It seems that he had a self-centred motivation to be the preeminent person, to be the top dog, and that this drove his behaviour towards other people. 
It's really interesting. Apparently, Diotrephes' name might give us clues about where this actually comes from in him. Diotrephes meant Zeus reared, nursling of Zeus. And it was actually a really rare name at this time. And it was only found in noble families. Some scholars think that Diotrephes might have belonged to the Greek aristocracy. If this is the case, it might sort of clarify his motives. Like he's used to a culture in which he is top. And he enjoys that. He's quite happy about it. And he seeks to protect that position that he has. You might say that Diotrephes is kind of like the private school boy of the ancient world. Like everything's been given to him on a silver platter. And I can say that because I went to a private school, although it was Cornerstone, so it's kind of like a faux private school. But anyway, the desire for preeminence, it's not just a first century thing. The motivation for celebrity, um, for wealth, for fame, it remains alive and, and well in many churches today. And it expresses itself, I think, when we judge like the health of our church by things like the number of people who are in the room um, or the dollars that are going to the bank or the grandiosity of our church building. I think we're all at risk of being beguiled, right, by this allure, the allure of ambition, the allure of wealth, especially in an area like the Adelaide Hills where we're kind of saturated in wealth. And the desires in all of us, including in me, when I was about 15, I was asked for the first time to preach by my youth pastor, Matt. And he told me that I shouldn't preach for applause, which is a good thing to tell a 15-year-old boy who's grown up with the silver spoon. Um, and he said that a practical way of avoiding this was to pray at the end of my sermon because then people would be less likely to clap for me. Of course, what do you think I did? I didn't pray at the end of the service of the sermon and I was quite happy to soak up that clapping. <laughs> Although I'm sure it was just pity clapping at that point. <laughs> and so we need, to, we need to knock down, right, this culture of preeminence in us. That's what my youth pastor was trying to do with me. Because it's not actually good for us and it produces lots of toxic behaviours. Now, Gaius and these travelling preachers are very different um, to diatrophies. Verse 6 shows us Gaius's motives. It was his love. It was his love for the brothers and sisters that led to his willingness to receive and welcome those travelling preachers. And verse 7 also shows us what motivated the travelling preachers to get out and hit the road for the sake of the name. It says that they did their work for the sake of the name, the name being Jesus, and that they received no help from the pagans or the non-believers or Gentiles. There's different words in different translations. In these days, there was actually wandering like teachers from a whole range of different religions and sects that were out on the road. And they made a living by travelling around on the road, extolling the virtues of their particular 
deity and then collecting money from the public. So they're kind of like religious salesmen. There's, an, there's like this old inscription that was written by one of these devotees of the Syrian goddess. And it describes how he travelled around in service of his lady and brought back 70 bags of money after each trip. So Christian travelling preachers were not, like, were not to be like these teachers. Jesus actually tells the 12 and the 70 to take with them no bag. And Paul condemned those who peddle the word of God for, for profit. And so the travelling preachers in 3 John, they also have rejected the prophet motive. They have resolved to receive nothing from unbelievers. And they think that the message, I think, was meant to be a priceless gift to the world. And that it shouldn't be repaid. So the love, it's love um, in Gaius and the travelling preachers that expresses itself in moving towards the needs of other people. Diotrephes' poor behaviour reveals his, his desire at the heart of it all to be the top dog, to be first. But the travelling preachers and Gaius, they weren't just doing this Christian thing for their own gain. It was for the sake of the name, for Jesus, for the love of God and for other people that they did what they did. So you can see our behaviour begins in our hearts, in our inner motivations. And like Gaius and the itinerant preachers, we must be motivated by love of God and other people. And this will produce the kind of behaviours, it will express itself in behaviours that lead to good things. Yet there's a problem. Can I have my last slide, please? There's a problem. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I feel like my motives are very similar to Diotrephes' motives. I'd prefer to be the number one guy rather than really love other people. I'd prefer the glory of my own name rather than Jesus' name. Sometimes. And this prompts, I think, a really fundamental question that's at the heart of all of this. How do we cultivate good motivations? The kind of motivations that lead outwards into practices and then to flourishing and well-being in our communities. How does that happen? You know, do we just sort of grow our hair out like Jesus and chuck on sandals and a robe? Do we try really hard? Do we need to want, to want, to want, to want to do the right thing? The second half of verse 11, I think it points a way forward to us if you have a look at it now. After calling Gaius to imitate the good, John concludes his counsel to Gaius by saying, anyone who does what is good is from God, is from God. And anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. And so it shows us what actually will bring about change in our inner life. Do you see what it is? 
It's seeing God. It's seeing God. That is the operating principle. And that's what um, the evil lacks. The answer is not inside ourselves, right? Like we're not going to find it by kind of really trying to plumb every little depth of our being and understand everything in there. It's not a works-based thing. We don't change by trying harder. Any change of our motivations, any good that we might actually do, it comes from God. And so I just want to finish with a quote from John Stott about this little verse. He said, Those who have been born of God have come with the inner eye of faith to see God. And this vision of God deeply affects their behaviour. The seeing is deeper than having just an object pass in front of you. It is the sense of being overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the nature of what has been seen. No one who sees God remains the same. There is an experience of being overwhelmed by God's glory that follows. One cannot experience this and continue to do what is evil. So the question is, have we, each of us, really seen God, seen what he's done for us? Do you know what God's done for you? If you don't, here's a quick summary. God loves us so much that he entered the world, that he gave his life on a cross, that he lay aside the glories of heaven and died and then was physically resurrected so that through the grace of God, fellowship with him and a new kind of life is made available to each of us. So it's when we see God's love that we can't help but love other people. When we see God's generosity, we can't help but give to other people. When we see God's hospitality, we can't help but receive other people. When we see God's goodness, we can't help but be good to other people. It's the gracious, generous work of God that is the catalyst of all of this, of any motive change and therefore of any life change in us. Shall we bow our heads and pray to finish up? And maybe band if you want to come up by I pray. Dear Jesus, I just ask that you would capture our eyes and our hearts. Lord, we want to see you because only you are able to transform our inner motives. So dear Lord, please change us. We pray that our transformed motives would flow out into the way that we behave towards other people. We pray that our behaviours would create a community of truth, of well-being, of safe refuge and genuine hope for the weary and wounded. And Lord, that we would be the light to the world. In your name, Amen. I just wanted to also open up a space if you would like prayer. Please, we'll keep it simple. Please don't um, let that go if you feel like you would like prayer. Maybe there's something you'd like to confess or something that you need help with um, or 
something that you'd like support through, a wound that you'd like prayer for. Um, Some of the elders will be available to pray both at the front and at the back um, during the worship time. So that would be great if, if you feel like you would like that opportunity, please take it. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.